This morning we're going to begin a new message series titled Rediscovering Christ. Um, you know, I don't mean that Jesus is lost and that we're now finding him somewhere, uh, nor that you know nothing about him or have forgotten about him or are neglecting him, but I think all of us have a tendency to grow a little complacent with familiarity. Uh, so I don't intend to speak about a Jesus that you've never known, but we're going to take a journey, a, a journey with the hope that we might rediscover the uniqueness and the awesome character of this historic yet divine person, Jesus of Nazareth. Another reason for the study popped in my mind this week, because there was a, there, I think there's a challenge that are facing those who believe in Jesus and take the Bible seriously. Uh, this past Monday in the Washington Times, there was a religion article titled, Faith Leaders Promote Strength of Peace and Diversity at Summit. The article opened with this. Faith leaders from dozens of nations gathered here at New York over the weekend to promote unity, imploring each other to see diversity not as a stumbling block, but as the cornerstone for developing a peace that can elevate nations and its leaders. The article noted that uh, one of the uh, chief sponsors of the summit was the widow of Reverend Sung Myung Moon of the Unification Church. Uh, further into the article was this, others who spoke Friday drew focus to a subject long contemplated by some theologians, how to positively embrace pluralism and religion as a divine bedrock for promoting harmony and equanimity in the world rather than allow it to be a source of acrimonious division. The challenge for us here today is to use this cornerstone of God's universal design to build a unified and peaceable world, said one of the clergy participants. Later, there's a quote from the senior pastor of the Nepalese Christian Society who said, My friends, if we truly believe in Jesus Christ, then we have to put aside our differences. We have to stop being Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Protestant, Catholic. We have to be believers in Jesus Christ. Now, that really sounds good. It sounds great. But what I want to know is, um, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? And... Which Jesus are we talking about? You know, this call to unity, at what cost? Do we sink to the lowest level of agreement so that we can be unified? And again, we come back to this central question, who is Jesus? And there's a secondary yet significant question, and that's this, what is the source of information about Jesus? And can we trust it? Our investigation of this person, Jesus, is going to be based out of the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the Gospels. Uh, but before we jump into it, I, I just need to remind you why this account and the Bible in general can be trusted, relied upon. So this is a bit of a review. If you've hung around Knollwood for a while, we've covered some of this. But I just at the beginning of this study seems really important that we kind of remind ourselves of these things. Is the Bible worth believing? Not is it worth reading, is it worth believing? And I want to focus in on three statements that compel me to say, yes, I can believe it. And this is especially critical when considering Jesus, who he is, 
and why I believe the biblical account about him. And so I want to suggest to you that the Bible is worth believing because it is unique, because it is reliable, and because it is authoritative. The Bible is unique. One of the things we discover is that God is a God of revelation. And apart from God choosing to reveal himself, we would just be clueless as to what he is about and what his purposes are in our lives. It would just be guesswork. But God has revealed himself in two ways. We call it general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is revelation that's been made known to everyone everywhere. And there are two primary witnesses about God within general revelation. The first is creation, and the other is conscience. One that's external, the other internal. But the effect of this revelation is that there is everyone without excuse. It's a level playing field for everyone. General revelation is enough to hold people accountable, but it's not enough to save them. In the words of the 16th century reformer John Calvin, it remains for God to give witness of himself from heaven. And this is the purpose of special revelation. So special revelation is sourced in two things, the living word, Jesus Christ, and the, and, and the written word, the Bible. Uh, God has revealed himself in the word, in the scriptures. But we really can't separate those two. Dr. Bruce Milne writes, Christ, the incarnate word, is known through the written word of God, the Bible. Knowing Christ is, of course, a richer reality than mere acquaintance about Bible teaching about him. But the Christ we know in personal experience is the Christ of the scriptural witness. There is no other Christ. Saving response to Christ means commitment to him in terms of scripture's testimony of him. And so think about this Bible, this written word, totally unique book, written over 1,600 years, over 60 generations, written by 40-plus authors from all walks of life, uh, during different times, during war, during peace. Uh, it's written on three continents and three languages. And yet, there is an, inexplic an inexplicable unity and continuity and harmony. It, it, it's the, the only conclusion is that this book is totally unique. So I think it's worth believing because it's unique in all the literature of the world. There's a second reason why I think we can believe what we read and what we study, and that's that the Bible is reliable. But the question comes up, how reliable is this Bible in our possession today? I mean, should we be concerned about a book thousands of years old? Uh, does it need updating? To be reliable. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce has written, by the singular care and providence of God, the Bible text has come down to us in substanti such substantial purity that even the most uncritical edition of the Hebrew and Greek, or the most incompetent or even the most tangentious translation of such an edition, cannot effectively obscure the real message of the Bible or neutralize its saving power. 
A man, a scholar by the name of C. Sanders, uh, in his Introduction to Research in English Literary History, put forth three basic principles in the field of historiography. That is, determining the reliability of ancient texts. One of those is called the bibliographical test. Um, in other words, it goes like this. Since we don't have the original documents, and we don't, in fact, I think we don't have them because they would have been idols somewhere. Since we don't have those original documents, how reliable are the copies that we do have uh, in regard to the number of manuscripts and the time interval between when they were first written, the originals, and the earliest copies we now possess called extant copies? So, this is a chart, as you've seen it before. I'm just going to give you some few examples of writings of antiquity that come from F.W. Hall, Manuscript Authorities for the Text of the Chief Classical Writers in the Companion to Classical Text out of Oxford. So you just look at some of these examples. Here's uh, Caesar, writing between 144 B.C. The earliest copy we possess of those writings are 900 A.D. So you have a time span of 1,000 years and we have 10 copies. Uh, look at Plato and his tetralogies. You've got 1,200 years between when they were written and the earliest copy that we have in existence today. We have seven copies. Uh, you can look at Thucydides, Euripides, Aristotle, a period of 1,400 years between when he wrote and the earliest copies we have, and we have five of any one of his works. Now, I, just, I put it up there for comparison. We have over 14,000 complete or incomplete manuscripts of the New Testament books, dating back into the early 2nd century. We now believe that we have some manuscript pieces that we can date to the middle of the 1st century, just decades after the events happened that they described. What's my point? If we dismiss the historical reliability of the New Testament, then you must, out of fairness, dismiss the reliabilities of virtually every writing of antiquity. You can't trust anything if you're going to be fair. So the issue isn't the time difference between when the events occurred and today. It's between the events and when it was written down describing the events. That's the period that we need to look at. So I think the Bible is worth believing because it's reliable. The record of events is so close, relatively speaking, to, to the events themselves that they describe that we have to accept the Bible as being reliable. The events recorded accurately as they happened. Now, we have further evidence showing up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is really about the Old Testament. Uh, these are ancient manuscripts that were discovered between 1947 and 1956. They were found in 11 caves on the northwestern shores of the Dead Sea in Israel, found in, 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 in pots, clay pots up in the desert area. Many of the documents, in fact, a majority of the documents, contain biblical texts. Either fragments or entire copies were found of every book in the Old Testament except Esther. And they date from the 3rd century B.C. through the 1st century A.D. But the amazing fact, and, and, and 
you know, they were placed in the middle of the first century A.D. The amazing thing is that they've lain there for 1,900 years before they were discovered. But why are the Dead Sea Scrolls important to us? Well, the reason is that before this discovery, the earliest manuscripts of Old Testament biblical texts dated from the 9th century after Christ. They were copies of earlier copies that have been lost. But now, for example, we have a scroll of the complete book of Isaiah, dating from the 2nd century before Christ. It's a thousand years older than any previous Hebrew scripture document that we had or knew about before 1947. And here's the amazing thing. The texts are similar to the documents that we have. The variations are less than 2%, and not a single teaching or doctrine of the Bible that we have is altered from those documents. So rather than posing a threat to the Christian faith, the Dead Sea Scrolls have, in fact, provided convincing evidence for the genuineness of God's revelation as given to us in the Bible that you hold. It really is incredible. The third reason why you and I should believe the Bible is probably most significant, and that is the Bible is authoritative. I want to go at this in several different ways. Um, let me begin with Jesus' view of Scripture, a view that needs to shape how we look at the Scriptures. Uh, we see in the New Testament, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament authoritatively. He never contradicted the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, quite the opposite. He said, do not think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus believed the witness of the Old Testament in the words, and God said. He also accepted Old Testament history as true. He spoke of a literal Adam and Eve. He spoke of a literal fall into sin, of a literal worldwide flood, of a literal Jonah, and so on. He also accepted as true Old Testament prophecy. Uh, his redemptive ministry was based upon a literal and complete fulfillment of scores and scores of Old Testament prophecies, 333 in his first coming. That's a foundation of revealed truth in the Old Testament. And Jesus anticipated the apostolic writings. When he was with his disciples in the upper room, he said to them, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now here's the point of all of that. Jesus held a high view of Scripture. If you hold a high view of Jesus, you, you, you must hold a high view of Scripture. It would be inconsistent for you to have a high view of Jesus and a low view of Scripture. It just doesn't fit together. And the Scriptures themselves explain the source of this authority. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, obviously, Paul's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures here. The New Testament, for the most part, hasn't been written. But the word inspired is really not a good one because of our usage of it today. I mean, we say that we're inspired by role models. 
We're inspired by a book that we read or a movie that we saw. We're inspired by the lives of others or, or we're inspired by beautiful scenery um, in some way. But, but that's neither the word nor the meaning that Paul uses here. It's not that God inspired these men to write the Bible. The word literally means God breathed out. In a sense, it's not inspired, it is outspired. Scripture is outbreathed by God. It wasn't that the writers of Scripture were inspired, but that the Scriptures themselves are inspired. Dr. Charles Ryrie writes that inspiration is God's superintending of human authors so that using their own personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. Inspiration has to do with the process of revelation being conveyed in Scripture so that the authors wrote exactly what God wanted them to without overruling their unique personalities or styles or vocabulary or culture. Another word theologians use to describe this authoritative word is that the Bible is infallible. Now, infallibility means that all the Bible's claims are truthful and worthy of full confidence. There's nothing in them that is misleading. They cannot mislead because they're God's word. By the way, they're not true because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they're true. And it's all bound up here in the intention of, of the, of the, in the mind of the author. So what it does is it allows for literary devices then, like hyperbole and parables and analogy. Scripture is infallible. Listen, it's only infallible as correctly interpreted and placed within the whole. So this doesn't mean, this doctrine, this way of thinking, does not mean that every human interpretation is valid and true. There's a whole science that deals with rules and principles for correctly interpreting Scripture. It's called hermeneutics. And there are scholars who study and have developed over the centuries these rules to help us interpret things correctly. Because we know you can make Scripture say anything you want it to. And so we have to be careful how we're interpreting. Are we doing it correctly? I believe the Bible is worth believing also because it's God's inerrant word. Inerrancy simply means the absence of error. And it, like infallibility, follows from the principle of inspiration. But we need to understand what inerrancy means and what it does not mean. First of all, inerrancy applies only to the original autographs of Scripture. The original written documents, by the way, remember, we have none. But it applies to that. Um, Dr. Bruce writes, the divine providence which sovereignly overruled and inspired inerrant, infallible transcripts of God's very words to mankind, did not operate with equal force in the production of the copies and translations which we have in our hands today. Dr. Gordon Fee talks about some of these discrepancies that we have in biblical texts that occurred during the copying of the manuscripts. For example, there are variances of spelling just like we have today, things like there, T-H-E-I-R and T-H-E-R-E, and, and let me tell you, spell check, just ain't gonna pick those up. 
Um, sometimes there are added or dropped letters. Uh, sometimes a copyist might have made a little note in the margin, and then a later copier thought that was supposed to be in the text, and so they wrote it in the text. But these scholars are constantly comparing copies that we have to see what is right, what ought to be there. Here's the important thing for us to know. Um, there's not any of those changes, any of those discrepancies that affect any doctrines in the Scripture. Milne writes, study of the very many manuscripts which come down to us confirms that they vary little from the originals which underlie them. The copying was undertaken with a due sense of responsibility in the light of the divine character of the originals. Now, I, I think the critical matter related to believing the Bible has to do with what should have the place of authority in our lives. Is it to be experience, an existential authority? Uh, is it to be the church and church teachings that are to be authoritative in our spiritual lives? Um, when our views of life and culture intersect, which takes precedence in our convictions, human reasonings or divine revelation? So I would submit to you that the supreme ultimate authority in our lives by which we need to judge everything else needs to be the living word and the written word. Jesus never contradicted scripture. In fact, he cannot nor will do that in your life. Now, without the objective standard of the word of God, you really have no way of objectively determining the course of life that pleases God. And really, it opens a whole can of worms in modern life. Uh, we have no way of objectively knowing the truth about who Jesus is and what that means for us today. So that leads us to our study of Jesus. Can we just, just all go, <sighs> glad that's done. Take a deep breath. As we consider, as in the beginning here, uh, we're going to talk about some introductory aspects about this book of Mark. Um, by the way, there's no name attached to this gospel, but the earliest name given as to its authorship is Mark. Uh, there are many who believe that the author of this book, uh, the shortest of the four gospels, is John Mark, who was a cousin of Barnabas. Uh, this Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey until he bailed out. Things got more than what he thought and expected, and he left and deserted them. And so after Paul and Barnabas split over the issue of taking them along on their second journey, Barnabas took John Mark with him and discipled him. So much so that by the end of his life, Paul asked that Mark would come to him. Now, John Mark was not one of the apostles, but his book carried the apostolic authority of Peter with it. Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis, who wrote between 110 and 130 AD, is quoted saying, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembers of the things said and done by the Lord, but not, however, in order. Mark evidently served as the secretary for Peter. Peter refers to him at the end of his first epistle with these words, the church which is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, 
my son. The Gospel account of Mark was written perhaps as early as A.D. 62 to 64. And as we look at it, Mark seems to have written this Gospel for the Romans in particular and for Gentiles in general. It seems that what Mark is intent on proving is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ to the Romans who conquered the world by their power and who knew the meaning of authority. It's also important for us to remember that when Mark's gospel was written, it was a tumultuous and dangerous time for followers of Christ. Christians were being brutally persecuted. Jesus had not turned out to be the political Messiah that everybody had hoped that he would be. And so Mark seeks to lift the perspective of these suffering saints to behold the one who possessed all authority and yet who also experienced suffering at the hands of persecutors. Now, here's another thing to think about the gospel. If you think of all the other gospels as a motion picture, as, as a film on the life of Christ, think of Mark uh, a, a, as a photo book filled with snapshots. That's really the way Mark writes. And so you just go picture, 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 turn the page, more pictures. Um, in fact, it's just an action-packed account. The words straightway or immediately occur some 42 times in the gospel. Over and over, and immediately, and straightway, and immediately. So again, think of it just like a photo book. The gospel opens with four witnesses to the identity of Jesus. And they declare together that Jesus is the anointed one, the divine one, God incarnate. And uh, this declaration, I have to tell you, is as needed today as it was when it was written. Because all around us we hear a confused assessment of who Jesus is. Is he just a great prophet, as the Muslim declares? Is he just a good moral teacher, an example for us to follow? Is he just a misguided mystic? Who is this guy? That's what we're trying to determine. Now, the first witness who declares Jesus' identity is the author of the book, Mark. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark, chapter 1. And I want you to see how Mark opens his account. Mark, chapter 1. Verse 1, here's how he starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the starting point for Mark. His witness to the identity of Jesus. He says that he is the Christ, means the anointed one. He is the Son of God. When you look at it, one thing that's most interesting is the fact that he gives no information about the birth or the early life, the early years of Jesus. This is probably the first of the gospel accounts to be written down. But Mark's focus is on the ministry of Jesus and on the authority from which this ministry flows. And so a very simple introduction. Then he reaches back into the Old Testament to lay the foundation for the continuity of God's plan of salvation and to establish the framework of fulfilled prophecy. Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is a prophecy of preparation for Messiah. He'll not come on the scene unannounced. In fact, the Old Testament is filled with references of announcements. Here's where he will be born. This is what the world will be like. He will be announced by the prophet. And so the third witness that Mark gives us is this forerunner, this prophetic announcer, verse 4. John appeared. This is a different John than the Gospel of John, the Apostle John. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Not my choice of diet, I must admit. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So who is this John? Well, we know several things as we look at the Gospel accounts. Um, he's a Levite. His father was a Levitical priest. And even his mother was related to the first high priest of Israel, Aaron. So he's got a really amazing lineage here. Uh, we know that he's a cousin of Jesus. Uh, he's a man of destiny. Uh, well, I want you to turn over to uh, the next book, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. And Luke describes this amazing event that happens. The angel Gabriel brings word to the prophet Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth will have a son, John. And then in verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is linked by Luke here directly to Elijah, fulfilling the prophecy that Elijah must come first before the Messiah. After the birth of his son, uh, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke prophetically of him. Look over still chapter 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We know that he's a man of the Spirit, evidenced by the words of the angel to Zechariah. We know that he's a man of humility and understanding. Uh, John the Apostle tells us more about the character of this witness in his gospel when he says this, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now that's a little confusing because this is John speaking of his cousin who happened to be six months younger than him. 
And so he's throwing us back to see the eternality of Jesus, Messiah. So he's an extraordinary man, this John. His message is very simple, it's very direct. Repent, that is, turn away from your sins, from your former manner of life, and be baptized, an outward sign of a repentant heart. Uh, It represented cleansing, purification. Uh, It's preparation for receiving Messiah. And then John contrasts his baptism, which is a baptism with water, and was external, and the work of Christ, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would be internal. So John's mark begins to set down these observations, these remembrances of the Apostle Peter, and he starts with these witnesses, three witnesses, Mark himself, the Old Testament scriptures, John the baptizer. Next week, we're going to see the fourth witness, which is amazing, and that's God the Father himself. And we're going to zero in on the authority, the display of Jesus' authority, as we see him exercising authority over Satan, over men, over spirits, over disease. Now, before I wrap up and we go to our dialogue time, um, let me just tell you how you can get the best out of the series. Um, First, read the text. We're going to spend the next 16 weeks in the Gospel of Mark. We won't be looking at every verse in Mark. We're going to have to jump and and skip a little around there. Uh, But but we're going to be reading. If you would just read one chapter a week, by the time we're done, you will have read the whole Gospel of Mark. Let me give you a better suggestion. Read each chapter two or three times during the week. Immerse yourself in the text. Get down a little bit in the text. Get your fingers dirty. Uh, in the text that you dig around there. Uh, here's another thing. If you're not part of a community group, uh, jump into one as this new year begins. They'll be running from now till early May. Uh, jump in because a lot of them are interacting over the text that I talk about on Sunday morning. So you're going a little deeper. You're talking about application more. You're talking you know, and sharing your insights with others in the group. And there are groups that are meeting all different days and times. Uh, Just contact Pastor Chris, email or phone call. If you'd like to know when they're meeting, you can find one that fits your schedule. Uh, Lastly is ask God to really show you who this Jesus is. Um, You may have been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but ask God to give you fresh insight into who he is into his character, into his life, into his ministry, and in particular, how you can take that and apply it into your life. So so make these next uh, four months a time of rediscovering Jesus. That's, That's why we're in this text. Well, let's pray. God, thank you that you chose to reveal to us what you're like. We thank you that you have sent your son to do that. And as the writer of the book of Hebrews declares that he is the radiance uh, of the glory of God himself. He's the perfect icon, the perfect uh, replica. In his character, in his life, we see you. And so, Father, I pray that during this time you'd help us to really uh, rediscover with new eyes, with a fresh view, who Jesus is and what he said and what that means to us and how we need to respond to that. And so we thank you in advance for the discoveries we'll make along the way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.